Welcome to another special episode of On the Ballot with Ballotpedia. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for tuning in. On today's special episode, you'll hear my interview with Amy Walter, who's publisher and editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report. There might be no one we'd rather be chatting with in the final days before the midterms. Amy has over 25 years of experience as a political journalist. She's a weekly contributor to PBS NewsHour, a regular Sunday panelist on NBC's Meet the Press and CNN's Inside Politics, and appears frequently on Special Report with Brett Baer on Fox News. The Cook Political Report with Amy Walter is a nonpartisan newsletter that analyzes American political campaigns and forecasts elections. We cover a lot in this conversation, Amy's backstory, some of the races she's watching in the midterms, what the biggest storylines might be, redistricting, polarization. This one was a lot of fun for me, so I hope it is for you too. Joining me now is Amy Walter. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So this last week heading into election day is kind of like the week before April 15th for accountants. I mean, there's so much (laughs) much news and late nights, lots of work going on. So I'm curious, do you have any big plans to relax post-election? That's an excellent question. Actually, for me, post-election can be both busier and more interesting because right now, the last, especially the last four or five days of the campaign, you know, pretty much things are settled, right? We know what the candidates are doing. We know what um, the the final polls are out, the final campaign ads are out. What we all want, or maybe a better way of saying it is, I've been looking at a Christmas tree for the last month with all these presents under it. And I've been waiting and waiting to open them. And I'm desperate to open them. (laughs) And I can't until election day, right? The problem with the way we cover campaigns, or at least the sort of traditional media covers campaigns, is they just cover the opening the presents part. I want to play with all the toys once I open them. Dive into the data, right? I want to dive into the data. And I really want to spend as much time post-election as I do in the sort of pre-election buildup. That, to me, is much more interesting. So I'm actually a lot busier probably for those, I don't know, 10 days or so after the election. Then it gets a little quiet. But as you very well know, Victoria, it may not be that quiet if indeed we have a runoff Mm -hmm. in the Georgia Senate race on December 6th. And if that race is ultimately the decider for control of the Senate, Mm -hmm. it will not be. I'll get a day in for Thanksgiving and that's about it. Yep. I cover ballot measures. So I think my life will slow down a little bit post-election, but I, same as you, I'm looking forward to like diving into those election turnout numbers. And exactly. Yeah. Before we dive into the nitty gritty of the midterm elections, I was wondering if you could share a little of your background with our listeners. What made you interested in covering American politics in the first place and how you got your start? Um, so I don't know how I actually got interested. It feels like it just happened over a period of time. Um, I came to Washington in early in the early 1990s. I had just graduated from college. I was a government major in college. I don't know if it was because I really thought I was going to work in politics as much as I uh, chose it because 
it had fewer papers than um, history had in terms of <laughs> the requirements mm-hmm. to graduate. And so I thought, all right, well, I'll, I'll do this. It's interesting. I enjoy it. I came to Washington at a fortuitous time. As I said, it's the early 90s. I was working for a group called the Women's Campaign Fund, which had been around since the 70s with the goal of trying to elect more women to all levels of office. And about a month after I come to Washington, uh, Clarence Thomas is in front of the Judiciary Committee. And of course, we have Anita Hill come and testify uh, during that fall of 1991. And this small little organization I worked for um, suddenly became deluged with candidates. You saw a record number of women running in 1992, which was dubbed uh, after the election happened at the year of the woman. You had record number of women, not just running, but winning in the House and in the Senate. So that was my introduction to politics. And I thought, well, this is pretty fun, right? I've only been here like five months and already making, I'm in the middle of history. Mm-hmm. Um so I stuck around. I worked for one of those members who won that year, uh, managed her campaign in 1994. And then I just couldn't quite figure out what I wanted to do. Um, I think a lot of people in Washington, young people in Washington have this same experience. There are a couple things you do that are you find really interesting. You try to get to the next step on the ladder and you find out, well, I don't really like what's on that next step. So I tried all kinds of things, trade association. Um, I as I went back to the Women's Campaign Fund. I was just sort of trying to figure out, well, what do I want to do with this whole politics? It worked on the Hill. None of them were really right for me. Mm-hmm. And then um, I met Charlie Cook and he said, listen, uh, uh, we needed somebody to cover the house for us. Would you, would you want to do that? So this is 1998. And I said, yeah, sure. That seems fun. And, um, then I, uh, it was only then that I figured out what I really enjoyed doing, which was the analysis and, and the, I was able to be involved with campaigns, but I wasn't managing them. I wasn't cheering for one side or the other. I wasn't working for a party or an institution or an association that had a vested interest in these candidates. Um, It's a little bit like being able, if you're really into sports, you're working at ESPN, covering sports, Mm -hmm. not being the person on the field. And that really appealed to me. And I think um, over the course of my time with Charlie, especially when it came to the house, Politics became less of a niche thing. You know, when I first started, very few people were following politics the way they do now. And then with the explosion of the internet and cable news and, and quite frankly, the fact that the House, the Senate and the White House keep sort of going back and forth with frequency Mm -hmm. over these last 20 years, um, it has made coverage of politics now much more high profile. But I still have the mindset of somebody who came into politics in the eighties and nineties with, um, you know, an appreciation for how this works, Mm -hmm. um, an understanding of how campaigns really function, not the sort of either theoretical or, um, 
mythical ideas of, of how campaigns and elections work and, you know, bring that to what I do every day. Yeah, I, I mean, Ballotpedia and the Cook Political Report are kind of in the sphere of their own with the exactly. nonpartisanship. When I studied politics in college, I was like, well, I don't want to go work on the Hill. I don't want to be a part of that rat race. So I'm really fortunate, like yourself, to have found myself in this space. Right. For our listeners who aren't super familiar with the Cook Political Report, could you give us the 5,000-foot view of what you all do? Sure. So we've been around since the 1980s. This is uh, Charlie Cook, who, as I said, hired me back then, um, started this publication. I, I think it was an actual typewriter or maybe one of those very early old fashioned computers, right, that you see in museums, but uh, typing it out on paper and, and literally getting it printed and mailed out to people. But the, the goal has always been to be the um, uh, we're not really the referees as much as we are sort of the consumer reports of politics. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Um, for people who are interested in campaigns, and that's everybody from the media to people who are donors to campaigns, right? You're a political um, action committee. You are a trade association. You're giving campaign donations on your own, or you're just really interested in understanding who these people are who are potentially coming to Congress. Um, our job is to help you sift through all the spin and all the data and all the stuff that's coming out and to give a, um, again, a, a real understanding of uh, how these campaigns are, um, are playing out, um, which candidates we think are favored or seats that are favored to go to one um, side or the other. So it started really as a way of, of giving our readers an appreciation for, of all the races, there are 435 House races every year, a third of the Senate is up. And obviously we have the presidential every four years. Okay. Which states, which races, which contests are the really, truly competitive, which ones are probably not going to make it there. Um, which ones are the surprises? Trying to give a, a again a realistic roadmap of the the political both the political environment overall the issues and trends and things like that, but also the roadmap in terms of you know uh, the road to the majority or the road to X many seats in the House goes through these specific districts. We um, typically interview uh, the candidates. Now that's getting harder, both with COVID, fewer people came in. We did some Zoom meetings, um, but also we just don't see as many candidates as we used to. They aren't coming in and, and sitting down with um, uh, reporters in Washington, I think in the ways that they did, again, back in the late 90s and the early 2000s. But we still try to meet as many of them as humanly possible. So uh, my thing, and this is why I loved covering the House when I first started working with Charlie, is the House to me is, um, the, first of all, I find them the most interesting because they're the most approachable, right? These are uh, folks that um, it, a lot of people aren't going to pay a whole lot of attention to. Uh, they fly under the radar. Again, there are 435 of them, not just 100 of them. But um, you, in a, in a one-hour hour interview, I, I learned a lot about 
this country, right, with meeting people from every single congressional, not every single congressional district, but uh, every single competitive congressional district, all all walks of life, all types of districts, urban, suburban, rural, um, north, south, east, west, and um, an appreciation for the ways in which different candidates um, think about, talk about the issues important to their constituents, important to them. Um, and it gave me a really, really deep appreciation for the diversity of this country that you, you can almost get nowhere else. I mean, it's through those members that you learn about, even within parties, mm -hmm. the differences in ideology and focus uh, in terms of, you know, what they think are the issues that matter the most to their constituencies. Plus, you know, I know we've gotten to a place where all politics feels nationalized, but uh, each of these districts still has something that's distinct about it, right? That makes it different from the other 434. So um, that is our job is to help you to understand those districts, those mem those people who may end up being members and um, for you then to, as a, as a reader of the Cook Political Report, have the best um, understanding without spin, without trying to, you know, give, give you our opinion. Mm -hmm. um, this is as, as uh, straight up analysis of the political landscape, I think, as you can get. Yeah, I would agree. Let's turn our attention to these midterms that keep popping up in this conversation. <laughs> um, since it's looking more likely that Republicans will take control of the House, why is the Senate still a toss-up? What factors are playing into the struggle for control of the chamber? Yeah, really good question. Um, I will point to three things. Uh, the first is the map. So as we know, every two years, just a third of the Senate is up. And some years... Um, it really benefits one party, which which seats are up that year, and um, other years the other party has been uh, gets a, a big boost. This year, um, yes, Democrats can't afford to lose any of their seats in order to keep the majority, but the seats they have to defend are all in states that Joe Biden carried. So this is not like twenty eighteen where. Democrats had to try to defend Missouri and Florida and Indiana and North Dakota. They lost all of those races, by the way, in 2018, which was a good political year for Democrats. But we know that um, it is harder and harder now for uh, even for senators. Certainly the House is the same, but for senators to win in states, hold on to in states where the presidential candidate of their party did not win. Um, in 2018, the only seat that uh, Republicans lost was Nevada, which is a state that, of course, Hillary Clinton had won in 2016. So this year, no red states for Democrats to defend. The second is retirements. Um, Democrats had only one retirement, Pat Leahy in Vermont, a, a very, very dark blue state. All of their competitive uh, Senate candidates decided to run for re-election, so they have an incumbency advantage. Meanwhile, it was Republican senators who decided to call it quits. Ohio, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, 
those races are all in play right now. It gave Democrats the opportunity not just to have to be on defense, but to play offense. I mean, we can make the argument pretty easily that if all three of those incumbents in those three states decided to run for re-election, we probably wouldn't be talking about those races right now. All three of those races are in play, and I would say Pennsylvania is the most likely of those three to flip, but um, to, to flip to Democrats. But had the incumbents run, these would probably be in the bank. And then the third is just the quality of the candidates. And again, I think if you had seen the more traditional Republican candidates or the well-known candidates run in a place like Arizona, the governor of that state deciding to run instead of uh, opting out, or Chris Sununu, the governor of um, New Hampshire Hampshire deciding to run, uh, I think we would also be talking very differently about the Senate. So those three things, I think, have really helped to put the Senate in a different position uh, than the House. And Ultimately, we're going to find out, right, in just a few days here, whether those three things are enough, even though the political environment continues to work against incumbent Democrats. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to watch play out. Uh, we just covered the top 15 elections. Ballotpedia is watching in a recent episode. So I'm interested in what your top races are. Do you have a list of like top three races you find most interesting or notable this midterm cycle? Mm. Mm. Sorry to put you on the spot. (laughs) Interesting. No, no, no. I guess there are ways to think about it. Um, So the one, this is my my colleague, Dave Wasserman, picked this up a a few weeks back, noticing that some of the most uh, challenging races for the Democrats, especially on the House side, are in states that intuitively don't make a whole lot of sense, right? Why are Democrats struggling in blue states like Oregon, Southern California, Connecticut, New York. Um, These are all districts that Biden carried. These are all districts that on paper should be safe. Now, some of them are are open seats, um, which again, as I said, that makes it a little um, less uh, predictable. But I think what we're seeing is that in states where you have democratic control of the, the state government, Um, really dark blue states where Democrats have been in charge for years and years and years, Uh, those House incumbents are are feeling the squeeze, a sort of a double squeeze. Voters are frustrated with what's going on in Washington, the state of the economy, disappointed in uh, President Biden. At the same time, they're not happy with what's going on in their states, whether it's homelessness or crime. Um, so if you're a Democrat, you're sitting there just feeling both in both ways, uh, voters looking to make a vote for change. And even though you're in a district that theoretically should protect you, it's not in this kind of year. The other thing that you notice in these states is while the abortion issue is a prominent one in Democratic ads, I think for voters in those states who aren't feeling the issue in an existential way, in the way they are in places like Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or Michigan, where there really is, um, and in the case of Michigan, it's literally on the ballot, mm-hmm. um, but where the, the those states are going to, over the course of the next year or two, 
have to make uh, decisions, have to pass legislation to this, you know, on this issue of access to abortion. And so it is much more prominent of a, or more salient of an issue, maybe we'll say it in those states. Um, the other uh, races I think that are are really interesting to watch are those that have significant Latino population, right? What is this, what is happening with a group of voters that quite frankly, um, we have been sort of lumping into one category for many, many, many years, just saying oh, this is the Latino vote. Um, I think we are now having a deeper appreciation for the diversity mm-hmm. within that. And it's not just by nationality, but also by region, by age, by um, gender, education level, in the same way we talk about white voters on all those demographic categories. And I think, you know, we'll hear a lot about South Texas. We'll hear a lot about Nevada and Arizona, but I think um, Colorado is another really important place to look. The new eighth district, which is um, Denver suburbs. It is more a working class Latino district. I think it's about 40% Latino, if I'm not mistaken. That's the kind of place too, I think we should be paying attention to not just the big you know, again, the, the Hallmark places race, that are, yeah, yeah that, thank you. Hallmark race. That's a good way to say that. Um, and then, you know, for election night, I, I kind of think about which polls are closing uh, the earliest and then which states traditionally return the ballot uh, uh, or the, you know, are, are able to call those races earlier than some of the others. So we'll have Florida, Indiana coming up pretty early and the kind of night it will be for uh, the two parties. I think we can look to the first district in Indiana, which is suburban Chicago, Gary, Indiana. This has been held by Democrats for decades, working class district that like so many other working class districts in the Midwest is sort of moving away from its traditional democratic roots, more into the sort of Trumpian Republican um, uh, uh, sort of uh, wing. And if uh, if we see the Frank Mervan, who's the democratic incumbent, lose there, I think that is a, probably a sign that this is going to be a very big night for Republicans. It would also be a... Um, a proof point that uh, Republican recruiting at the House level has been successful, you know, uh, in diversifying the Republican caucus. The woman running here is African-American military veteran. There are many women, people of color who have been recruited and then successfully won their primaries who if they come to Washington um, will help to make the Republican conference a um, little less male, a little less white. Mm-hmm. You touched briefly on redistricting in your answer. So I figured we could jump to that topic for a little bit. How will that factor in to the general election? It clearly factored into the primaries. We saw 15 incumbents losing their primaries, some of that due to redistricting. So what's your perspective on that? I think you have to look at a couple of 
not a couple. There are some races where, um, in fact, I should probably be able to bring them up, but where redistricting has meant that you have um, incumbents running in districts that are relatively new to them. Um, some folks, they just were caught up, right? Like there's nothing they could do about it. Their district just got totally redrawn and they said, um, okay, here, I'm going to look at this for a second here. They, their districts got just completely redrawn and they, there's not there's not much you can do about it, but just <laughs> jump in and, and best, run. Yeah. There are others like um, Sean Patrick Maloney, the chair of the DCCC, who moved districts. He went into a district that on paper is a little more democratic leaning, but 75% of that district is new to him. And there are a number of incumbents here who are running in districts that are at least 60% new to them. I I think we kind of tend to overlook how important that is, right? For even, you know, the whole point of incumbency, having an incumbent advantage is that voters at least have a passing (laughs) reference to you. know your name at least, yeah. They at least maybe know your name or they've heard of you. Now you got to go into places where they've never seen you before. Now in some states, right, you share the same media market. So it's not quite as challenging. They may have heard your name. They just have never seen you on their ballot, but they're like, oh yeah, I've seen, I've seen ads from this person. But there's a reason I think that Sean Patrick Maloney is in trouble there. And one of those is there are a couple of reasons. One is, as I talked about that blue state squeeze for house Democrats, but the other is the fact that 75% of that district is new to him. Um, same with Katie Porter, Congresswoman from Southern California, Orange County. She's somebody who has a very high national profile. It has helped her raise millions of dollars as a candidate. This district, again, by the numbers, leans Democratic, but 59% of that district is new to her. Dina Titus in Las Vegas, half that district is new to her. So these are folks, and Dina Titus has been in Congress for quite some time, but these are folks who are looking at districts that, you know, they they could say, well, I've I've been in Congress for, for quite some time, but voters there are like, you've never been on my ballot before. I don't know anything about you. Um, I think that's probably the biggest impact that uh, redistricting has had. So some of it is still yet to be seen as as we see voters respond to those candidates. That's right. I recently listened to your interview on Vox's The Weeds a few weeks back about polling. And you kind of talk about how our expectations of polls kind of expect them to be crystal ballish, you know, like they're going to predict the future. So how would you say polling fits into your forecasting? Um, I still think it's very important to give us an understanding of the broader playing field. And while I think we have to appreciate what it can and can't tell us, polling cannot be as exacting as we would like it to be. Many of these contests, especially in the Senate, are going to be one or two point or three point races. A poll, a political poll, even the best pollsters spending the most money cannot get you the exact uh, number when we're talking about races that are this close. What they can do, though, is show you, and this is why what we like to use them for, is an appreciation of some of the trends, 
the ways and how voters are feeling, what um, the ways in which one party or the other is motivating or is motivated or unmotivated in this upcoming election. So I think what they do is they do help you to understand the motivation of voters. They help you to understand where certain candidates, especially again, incumbent candidates sit. How do people feel about them? For the challenger candidates, do people know them? Do people have a positive um, opinion of them? Do they have a negative opinion of them? The first thing I look at, especially in any statewide poll, is how people feel about the president. I don't look at the horse race number. It's what's the opinion of the president? Because we know that traditionally that is a pretty good indicator for how well that party. So whoever the president is, if it's Donald Trump, obviously how the Republicans will do this year. It's how will Democrats do based on how um, people feel about Joe Biden in that state. And what we know is, you know, there are candidates who are able to outperform the president, but that it that the lower the approval rating for the president, the harder it is for that candidate to win over those last two, three points that they need to win the contest. Because it's one thing to get voters, you know, 5% of all voters who say, I'm not really into Joe Biden, but all right, fine. I, I like this democratic candidate. Fine. I'll, I'll vote for them. It's hard to get 10%, Mm -hmm. 15% of those people who are saying they don't like the way that Joe Biden is doing his job to vote for a candidate of that party. Um, and Right now, that is sort of the seminal question in this election is, is, um, you know, is the polling, not not that it's accurately capturing the horse race, but is it accurately capturing the the challenge or the, the, the tension for these voters, which is disliking President Biden and the direction of the country? but also disliking a lot of what they see coming from Republicans Mm -hmm. and how do they manage that dissonance? I think that's a good jumping off point to talk about swing voters. You talk a lot about and write about polarization in our country. How is that squared with the rising number of independents registering and how do you see them playing into this election? Interestingly enough, as we have become more polarized and more partisan, um, the parties have actually become less important. And so what that means is there was a time, not that long ago, but when I started in in politics, where the party was the gatekeeper. They were the people that vetted the candidates. They were the people that had the key to open and unlock the um, access to donor money. They were the people that helped to contribute to the campaigns um, of these candidates. You needed the party. Now, as a candidate, you can do a couple of things. You can totally, I mean, you can completely bypass the party now in a way you never could. You can go and if you happen to have a national following or a viral video or two, you can raise a ton of money online. If you have a certain ideological bend, you can 
get the um, endorsement or support from ideological super PACs. Or if you happen to have a really good friend who's a billionaire, that's always helpful. I'd like to have some billionaire friends. I don't have any, but if I did, I would hope they would spend some money on me. So the parties themselves now become less critical, less important. Mm -hmm. I think voters are aligning themselves. um, Okay, so that's one thing that's happened. Then you say, well, if the parties aren't that important, then why do people seem to vote overwhelmingly Democrat or Republican? And I think what we have come to appreciate is this thing called negative partisanship, right? That people are voting for candidates, not so much because they identify with the party. They say, oh, well, yeah, I vote for Republicans all the time because I think they stand for X, Y, Z. And that's important to me. They say, well, I consider myself an independent because most of the time I don't like these people. I don't, I don't agree with what they do, or I don't like how they do X, Y, or Z, but I cannot vote for Democrats as long as fill in the blank Mm -hmm. is there, right? I don't, or, you know, I, I guess I vote for Democrats because I'm really scared of Donald Trump. So I think that's a piece of it. I think the other piece of it is younger voters, especially who are, have felt completely, um, detached from the traditional party, um, apparatus. Mm-hmm. Again, if you if you've grown up at a time where the two parties don't seem to have much of a hold, mm-hmm. as I said, they they have become less important in terms of driving the the process of elections, the kinds of candidates, um, that it's hard to appreciate or understand why you should be aligned with one party or the other. You're just really watching for signals mm-hmm. uh, from the candidates. However, that isn't just, I do think that swing voters have more power than ever because if fewer partisans are willing to defect, fewer people are willing to say, you know what, I'm a Democrat, but I got to give Trump credit. The economy's doing well. So, you know what, I'm going to vote for Republicans. Or that a a Republican would say, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the Democrats have some really good ideas for how we're going to get out of COVID. So, you know, I'm going to vote for the Democrat. With fewer people doing that, it's the people that are, uh, we call them swing voters, but I think a better way to think about them are people who just are not invested in the outcome in the same way. All right. They don't wake up in the morning and put on a red or a blue jersey, even though they may have feelings about the red or the blue team. It's a little bit of it like how I feel about football. I don't watch the NFL. I don't know who's in first place. I don't even know most of the people who play. I know like who Tom Brady is, right? But as we get closer and closer to the Super Bowl, I'm paying more and more attention to what's going on. And I'm um, going to show up on Super Bowl day. But I'm not really all that invested in who wins, but I'm, I'm going to be living sort of in the moment. Mm-hmm. So I think for many of these voters, they are living in the moment. Mm-hmm. What is happening to me today? I'm not thinking about what does this mean if Democrats have control of Congress? What does this mean if Republicans have the Senate? Um, 
they're thinking, I don't know, prices are going up or I'm worried about, you know, my kids getting on the school bus and, and, um, uh, the threat of gun violence at their, um, you know, wherever at their school, sorry, I lost train of thought, but just whatever it is that you as a voter, your day-to-day life, how is politics intersecting with that? And the outcome is not, you're not thinking much beyond how's it going to make my life better or <laughs> how is it going to make it less worse? Mm-hmm. And, um, those folks, as we know, they, uh, have, for the last few midterm elections, um, really been the reason why one party or the other wins. Um, Independent-leaning voters voted double digits for the out party in every midterm election since 2006, right? They are the ones saying, okay, I don't like what's going on with this party or the direction that this party is taking us. We need some change or we need to need to make things a little bit, um, a little bit different. The other thing I think we have to appreciate is that politics is, is as much about who stays home as who turns out. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of people who turn out are people who think that it will matter that they vote. Um, usually those are people who are angrier that are more, um, they're frustrated and believe that their vote is going to actually sort of at least send a signal, send a message, mm-hmm. if not make actual change. People who are feeling disappointed and frustrated, um, but don't think it really matters or, you know, just think that, that they've been sort of burnt out by the process. If they stay home, that matters just as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Our last and final question, the Cook Political Report, like Ballotpedia, is committed to nonpartisan, fact-based news and analysis. So I'm wondering, why is this a priority for you all? And how do you go about ensuring that your coverage remains neutral? Right. It's really important, especially now. I mean, it has always been who we are, so we didn't have to make this up um, and say, oh, we're doing this in reaction to the... um, the culture, the real partisanship yeah. and the culture. Um, so in that way, it's, it's, it's almost like, um, the moment has caught up with us rather than, Oh, we just saw this moment and decided to dive in and, and, and take advantage of that. Um, I think the best way to, to keep focused on being both nonpartisan and to being fair and, uh, and balanced is to, Um, One, talk to as many people as possible, not just the same names, many of whom you've probably read or you're talking to, too. They're all good. I'm not suggesting that people who get quoted are um, not uh, accurate in, in what they do, but talking to as many voices out there as possible, being fair and, um, uh, truthful with your sources, Mm -hmm. right? Um, we've built relationships with these pollsters and consultants and, um, political observers in these states for years and years and years. And they have faith in us that they, that we will report it accurately. Um, and the final thing is going into coverage with some empathy rather than going into it with your, um, mind sort of already closed up. Oh, well, you know, 
uh, elections never do this, or Republicans could never do that, or Democrats can never win when it's on X. Um, so you have to have, um, you know, we all have our priors, right? We appreciate as, especially as we go through cycle after cycle, things that work, things that don't, the same arguments that get made over and over again. But, um, you have to be open to the idea that while structurally there are things that don't change, um, we also live in a world, as I said earlier, where 2,000 votes, 10,000 votes can change everything. And so um, really being being open enough to, to see the possibility of things that maybe you know, there's a part of your head that says, well, it's never happened before, so it can't happen. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to put that on hold for a little bit, dive into the data, listen to what the two sides are saying or one side is saying about this and see if it holds up. I, I usually do that at the beginning of every cycle is kind of get to the heart of, okay, what are the arguments that both sides are making? What are their their hypotheses, right, for how this election is going to go. And as you move through the year, you're constantly, you're like a scientist, constantly checking that hypothesis. And eventually it, it becomes clear, sometimes um, it becomes clear and clear that one side's hypothesis is playing out. Mm -hmm. um, and the other side, well, it was a good try, but doesn't really work out. Now, um, on election night, you get obviously the more clearer appreciation and understanding of it, but but constantly testing that throughout the year, I think, is what helps to keep um, the Cook Political Report focused on the right things and um, true to our mission. Ballotpedia is really grateful for your mission. We use you all, of course, on our articles. So thank you for all that you do. And thank you for your time today. I know that you're busy. So thank you for joining us. And I hope you really enjoy opening those presents on Election Day. Thanks, Victoria. I hope you get to open your presents, too. <laughs> and that we, we we do get something or maybe even in the next two days after the election, we get to play with our toys. Yes. Thanks, Victoria. Victoria.